Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we spoke to a professor of psychiatry at Queen's University, Kingston, and visiting professor at the University of Oxford, Dr. Anne Duffy. Anne has an extensive research background in understanding the development and early intervention of mental illness in young people. Her current research is focused on developing an international collaborative network of student mental health research called You Flourish. In this conversation, we discussed understanding bipolar disorder supporting students' mental health, and whether mental illnesses can be genetic. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ Open Mind. And we're delighted today. We've got another fantastic guest. We've got Anne Duffy, and Anne is Professor of Psychiatry at Queen's University in Kingston, and also visiting professor at the University of Oxford. Welcome to our podcast, Anne. Really excited to, Craig and I are really excited to hear about the work you've been doing over the last few years. Well, I'm really excited to be here and thank you very much for the invitation. Welcome in. So what we try and do in the podcast, Anne, is we try and take people on a journey through your career effectively and really what the key influences were for you. But before we do that, I'm, I'm, as an Irish person living in Scotland, I would like to say Anne Duffy sounds like a pretty Irish name to me. So is it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In fact, and it's from the paternal line, obviously, because it's my last name. And so my father was born in Scotland, as was, but his father came over to Scotland as an orphan after his uh, mother died in childbirth, is the story. Now, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure exactly where in Ireland the the Duffy clan in in our case resided, but certainly uh, Motherwell, Scotland was where my dad was from. Motherwell, and so Motherwell's not far, it's Pretty close. It's about 25 minutes on the train from Glasgow, where I live now. So um, have you been to Motherwell? I have. Not for not recently, but uh, actually on the um, on my birthday, I did visit Edinburgh and the area just to kind of um, sort of remind myself when I was last in England and Scotland um, about Scotland. But uh, yeah, Motherwell was a was a difficult place in the days that he was raised there, certainly. And his family were involved in the steel industry. Yeah. And, so they went through some hard times, I think. No, no, absolutely, absolutely. And well, I mean, it's great to have a fellow Celt on the on the podcast today. So let's get back to the, the sort of the main business. So tell us a bit. So you're obviously now a professor of psychiatry um, at Kingston, and and I know we're going to talk about two areas of your work: uh, the work with university students, and also the, the work with uni- with bipolar disorder. And of course, there's no doubt overlap between the two. But maybe can I take you back to where? Where did your interest in mental health and psychiatry begin? Sure. Well, I guess if we think about it in terms of a journey, um, really, I think early on, my mom was a great example. So my mother, I should leave my mother out. She was born in England, in Birmingham, another industrial city at the time. And my parents immigrated after the war to Canada um, to give us girls a better life, quote unquote. Um, but uh, actually, we find ourselves going back to England and Scotland and Ireland often. So, um, But anyway, my journey um, was really started with the example of my mom and my parents. I think, which they were were really advocates of, you know, um, having a purpose 
being getting busy. You know, we all had jobs and part-time jobs when we were younger and teenagers and girl guides and all that stuff. And and you know, they they had us kind of aiming for things. And the other thing was the importance of friendships and relationships. My mom was terrific at making and keeping relationships. She has friends dating back to when she taught keep fit in Birmingham as a teenager wow. when she was in her 90s. So she was a really great example of that. And then myself, I went into keep fit and dance early on. And that was actually my initial thought of a career was to be a, a dancer. And um, so I learned then the importance for me. And, and I think the evidence supports this of, you know, incorporating music, art, um, physical fitness to really support our well-being and mental health. And that certainly was my case because I tended to be on the anxious side and it really helped me release a lot of that anxiety and extra kind of nervous energy. And then as life has it, they throw, you know, you get thrown curveballs. So the best laid plans, I had my audition with the, the National Ballet of Canada, I was turned down. And at the same time, I started to have really severe asthma. So as puberty kicked in, of course, uh, allergies change. And we had cats and dogs and all kinds of things I was allergic to. And, and I started to have these severe asthma attacks. And I was in the ER and in cardiac recess a few times. So they're quite severe. And what happened was I became fascinated in the medical world. I was so blown away by this collective teamwork of helping people in distress and really amazed. Once I, I, thankfully had a kind of illness that I could rebound from and get better from. So as soon as the um, medication was taking effect, I could sit in the emergency room and look around and say, oh, I wonder what's going on over there. And oh, wow, what's happening here? And, and, and became really interested in the whole world of the hospital and, and medicine. It turned out, though, I was much more of an art student than a science student in terms of my aptitude. And it took me a very long time to get into medical school. Um, on my fourth application, I got, got in off the wait list to the University of Calgary. I'm forever grateful. And um, it turned out I, I was going to go into pediatric medicine or, or pediatric eMERGE because that's what I had known as really impactful in my own life and was really thankful for that. And um, I did get accepted into pediatrics, but by the time that came around, I realized I was absolutely crap at doing procedures. I was always getting my left and right mixed up. I was I, I was poor at suturing. I'd be so nervous. And I and I and with the kids coming in with infections, I was always getting sick myself and having asthma. And I thought, actually, my strength is talking to people. It's, it, I'm really interested in the journey and I'm, I, I seem to be able to connect. So I went with my strength and to the um, surprise of the head of pediatrics, because I had been, you know, knocking at that door throughout my medical school <laughs> undergraduate career, I turned them down and went into psychiatry and um, have focused on actually young people. So uh, children, adolescents and young adults. And it's, I'm forever grateful. It's, I'm blessed to do it. That's a fascinating journey. And, and I suppose early on, the mind body relationship was pretty central to all of your thinking, even though at that stage, I suppose you probably weren't as focused on that. Um, and so, do you? But do you regret though not doing the da the dancing or not pursuing it any further? I know you're saying went for the interview and so on, but well, I think that's one of life lessons. I was really persistent um, for some reason at that point in my development. For whatever reason, I dug in and got persistent, and I I could have deviated and gone into other directions to help others and to be involved in medicine and medical research. But I really wanted to go to medical school and I didn't give up on that. I had given up on dance and I do regret that because I, I you know, in some ways it's a blessing because I have this wonderful career and opportunity and I've, I'm 
you know, a different person. I pro I might have been at risk for um, being a habitual cigarette smoker too if I was a dancer, just to try to keep the nervous energy and the weight down. But uh, which wouldn't have been good because I, you know, with my asthma. But uh, I think sometimes things do happen for a reason, and and it's a, you know, turn down is an opportunity, yeah. and that's what it turned out to be in my life. But I I do often wonder, you know, I, I certainly tell my children if you have a dream, keep the dream, you know, yeah. like work on it. Absolutely, absolutely. As one door closes, another, another yeah. opens, obviously. Exactly. Um, did you then go straight into a clinical role and then an academic role, or is it always, have you always done both? So I was really fortunate. Because, well, again, talk about, you know, disappointments becoming opportunities. So I mentioned it took me what seemed like forever to get into med school. In fact, in those days, it was like before the internet, okay, so or the advent of the internet. And I would walk over to the medical school and the secretaries, of course, knew me and I worked part time in the hospital to, to fund my university. And they'd say, Oh, my God, Ed, we're so sorry, you know, because they they'd mail out the letters, and then they could tell you if you got in if you went to the admissions office. Yeah. And and so years later, it's a nice little story. Years later, there was a newspaper clipping on the research I had started in children at familial risk of mood disorders. And this one lady who had been a secretary wrote me an email and said, oh my gosh, Anne, I'm so happy you got into medical school finally. Because <laughs> she had seen me in the newspaper, the poor woman. I'd... Anyway, so to answer your question, my involvement in research, I got into medical school late. And that meant that I had the opportunity to do graduate work. So I had done my master's in medical sciences and I had started a PhD actually in cognition and neuropsychology. And so by the time I got to medical school, I wasn't your sort of prototypical medical student. I was saying, really? Like, that's it? You're just going to give us a lecture on that? And that's it? That's all we're getting? Like, you know, and so it was, and I was nervous. So when the university I was at, which for my residency was the University of Ottawa, they had the foresight to open up a, an elective stream for research. And so as a trainee mm -hmm. in psychiatry, we could um, apply to be in this research stream. And we could kind of hook our wagon to an established researcher and we could join a research group. And, and that was a huge opportunity for me both to become a better clinician and to become um, what I hope is an impactful researcher, because there was a, a group led by Dr. Paul Groff, who was originally from the Czech Republic and had um, sort of escaped communism, so to speak, and, and come to Canada. And um, he, he was a classically trained European academic psychiatrist who really had dedicated his life to researching bipolar disorders. And his group at the time were looking for the genes for bipolar disorder. And so I got involved in his group and got involved initially interviewing family members of bipolar patients. And I was interested in child and adolescent psychiatry, but these family members were adults because the, theory, the thinking, of course, in genetics is you have to pass the period of risk and then you can figure out who's been affected and who hasn't. And as I was interviewing these family members, I was struck by a few things. One was how clear they were on their history and, and when an episode of major depression hit, it was so debilitating and awful. They remembered the date of onset, the duration, and I'll, we'll maybe come back to this in a minute, the difference between depressive symptoms and major depressive episodes. And the other thing they asked me was, do you think my children will develop this illness? What is the likelihood? You're a child and adolescent psychiatrist. What is the likelihood that my children will have my illness? And, um, we didn't really in those days have any good individual prediction data. And that really, so at, when I was trying to figure out my own project, you know, I was talking to Dr. Groff about this and, and 
some people were saying, well, yeah, but you know, that doesn't really help the genetics because they need to be adults in order for us to make sense of it. This was before epigenetics, which is looking at gene variants, but the functionality of it and what exposures can change the function of genes. That was before the advent of that line of science. And Dr. Groff had the foresight to say, you know what, let's, let's do that. Let's ask our families if they would be interested in having Anne assess their kids clinically, um, not to scare anyone or over pathologize, but just to understand how these kids are doing. And by that, that way we can capture kind of the onset of the illness as it, as it occurs and versus what's normal wobbles and upset and that kind of thing. So that was the start of my research career in psychiatry. So did you then establish a new cohort or? That's right. Yeah. So in part, so, and, and before it became sort of um, fashionable or an integral part of research, we partnered with these families. So we were in it together and we have been for two and a half decades. And um, we would ask them about what they thought about our research plans. They would partner with us in terms of bringing family members to, to meet us. And so, so what we did was the initial study. Um, and I remember telling Dr. Groff, you know, I can stay for a year. <laughs> and uh, 25 years later, we're actually, I was just emailing with him earlier this morning. Um, so I can stay for a year. Um, so what we did initially was we wanted to interview families where the parent had a clearly what we would call a classical form of illness. So manic depressive illness, episodic on off illness. So actually, hold on. So can you stop me for one second? And for, for the listener who doesn't know what bipolar is, illness is and I think you're about to do this anyway be good maybe just to tell us what what we mean by bipolar disorder how it's different from other depressive illnesses and then sorry then return to the point you're making sure, on absolutely great point yeah so and actually what we think we know about bipolar disorder and, and our concept has changed so that's why I talk about the classical illness in other forms so bipolar disorder the broad term covers a group of related mood disorders um, that really share the idea that there's not only depressive episodes, but there's episodes, mood episodes of a completely opposite polarity. And, and what we mean by that, it's unbelievable that our brains can do this. It's a brain disease that's inherited. And so um, people affected will have debilitating episodes of major depression that recur, but they'll also experience at least one episode that we call mania or hypomania. And what that is, is really the reverse of depression. So in terms of our thinking, in terms of our feeling, in terms of our behavior, everything gets ramped up, grandiose, great creative ideas that get at some point out of control and this euphoria, but it's, it's completely, it sounds like we'd all like a little bit of mania, but but the actual episode is debilitating and very serious and ruins people's lives. And, and so it's interesting that the brain can take us in these completely different states within the same illness. And so that's what we mean by bipolar disorder. And then in terms of the prevalence, how common is bipolar disorder? So as I mentioned, our concept has changed. So we used to have a very narrowly defined, it used to be called manic depressive illness to cover the manic and depressive polarities. And that illness onset typically in adolescents, young adults, the predominant polarity of episodes was depression, actually recurrent major depression and, and with hypomania or mania um, less frequently. Um, you would see recurrent mood disorders in family members, not other psychiatric disorders. And um, there would be good, actually good quality of spontaneous remissions, at least in the initial course before the burden of illness kicked in. And creativity was actually 
mm -hmm. uh, associated with, with having manic depressive illness, although the mood episodes were uh, debilitating. And then since that time, the concept has expanded for, that's a whole other podcast for a number of different reasons. <laughs> um, but now, it, now the emphasis and usually coming from the American tradition rather than the European tradition of looking at life course, the American tradition is more about kind of um, DSM criteria checklist of symptoms and putting emphasis on the manic episode. And what that's done is broaden the concept, the diagnostic construct of bipolar disorder. So now we're, we are including patients in that construct that probably in previous decades we would have thought of as maybe on the more psychotic spectrum, so schizoaffective bipolar, or maybe more on the, um, we talk about spectrum conditions, so yeah. bipolar spectrum, which is more kind of chronic fluctuating mood lability and comorbid anxiety. Um, and sometimes we include some personality variants. So it's become very broad. And so obviously the prevalence has changed, depends on what you're counting. So the more narrowly defined manic depressive illness, statistics would agree that that's about 1.2 to 1.5% of the population. Um, but you can read reports that talk about 4%, yeah. you know, if you're talking about these more spectrum conditions. How can you test for bipolar? Like, uh, I, I imagine some people may say that they just they have mood swings. How would they know the difference between, I guess, just mood swings and um, bipolar disorder? So that's a really important question. And, and thanks for that, because I spend it's interesting, depending on where you practice. So for years, I practiced in the hospital setting up specialty clinics for patients with severe mood disorders, including bipolar disorder. Now I'm working as a consultant to student health on campus. And so, of course, we're having students coming saying, you know, I've read these criteria and I think I might have bipolar disorder. And because what they're what they're experiencing are symptoms of mood lability, moodiness, mood changes, some depressive symptoms, a lot of anxiety symptoms. And and that I think one of the main stumbling blocks for psychiatry and, and, and where there's going to be a huge advancement moving forward is if we could find a reliable way to test for, you know, say major depression, bipolar disorder, as opposed to more normative, but still very can be very distressing, but more normative symptoms of anxiety and depression that really are more contextually, contextually driven. So if something bad happens to me, I'm going to feel upset and sad. And, and because I have a neurotic nervous predisposition, that's just who I am, I'm going to have an exacerbation of that anxiety, and it can be quite uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I have a mood disorder like major depression or bipolar disorder. And currently there is no test to determine those two. It's really a um, comprehensive clinical assessment. Oh, no, that's great. I think it's really important to, cl to clarify that. So going back then and to, or I want you to take us on this very, very quick 25 year journey then. You've just said that, that the, that study really started 25 years ago. I know this is a very broad question, but what do we now know as a direct result from the work that you've been involved in that we didn't know then? This is very timely, and I'm I'm really happy to answer this question because I just I'm just doing the progress report for the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, who have funded this work uh, for 25 years. Now we had a few breaks where I had to, you know, blood, sweat, and tears had to try to get my grant back, so to speak, because you know there's always great there's always great applications and not enough research funding. Let's put it that way. So there was some lean years there, but essentially 25 years of funding. And what do we know? So we started off with the question 
about what does bipolar disorder look like? Because we didn't, we knew about the established illness, but we didn't know much about the onset. So what does that initial clinical trajectory into bipolar disorder look like? And we've been able to describe that over 25 years and a sufficient number of young uh, offspring of bipolar parents, both more classically ill parents and less classically ill parents, shall we say, more broad spectrum. We've been able to show the similarities and differences in the clinical trajectories. And what that's done is provided a sort of framework for us to loop back and say, right, what were the important exposures? Because we've talked about that this is a hereditary illness. It has high heritability. But most kids of a, of a parent with bipolar disorder do not develop bipolar disorder. And so what determines that? And, and so what are the exposures early in different stages of development that can you know, turn on genes or increase the risk? And, and so we have now this developmental framework of the evolution clinically into the illness. And so now we can start mapping multi-level risk markers onto that and under, understand the process better. The other thing that that sort of staging or clinical trajectory framework has provided is in points for prevention and intervention. So if we know, for example, that anxiety and sleep disorders in childhood, of these children at confirmed familial risk for bipolar disorder, so you have to have the family history, if these anxiety and sleep disorders are actually precursors to major mood disorders in adolescence and adulthood, what then then it's important to intervene. And, and so this would be, and does that then delay or mitigate or actually prevent the onset? So those are the next series of questions and, and there's research now picking up on those themes. And then looking at what the targets might be using this kind of developmental framework in adolescence, it would be of course teaching about healthy lifestyle, not using substances and um, learning socio-emotional coping resources in order to reduce stress and anxiety and improve um, kind of coping with stress. And the other thing we were able to show is that um, different coping mechanisms can, pre can protect young people at familiar risk. So avoidant coping was not healthy, whereas, you know, sort of active problem solving and connecting with others was. So, so we've started to use this framework that we've developed to inform intervention and inform other discovery research. So just on, 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 the, on the sort of moderators effectively, the, so the, the coping mechanisms you're talking about. So, so if you then, in tracking the, the, these people over time then, that even with the familial risk, that the likelihood of onset of bipolar disorder is reduced in those who have been more active and, and their coping strategies are more active and more problem focused, is that? So, so what now what we have to do is the actual sort of proof of the pudding, the interventions and see what yeah. the data suggests these associations. Yeah. Okay. Um, so now it's about looping back and embedding studies in, and to, to test this specifically. And there are studies going on. So Stephen Jones from the University of Lancaster, for example, has a grant where he's looking at early on for young children, rather than targeting the children themselves, because they're so young, targeting the parents and teaching the parents how to teach the kids how to reduce anxiety and stress and improve their you know, their parenting skill sets, so to speak, and their uh, resilience as parents and competence. So that's an example of how our research has informed the next generation of research. Yeah. I should say, though, looping back to the original, I was really happy to do this, the original parent question, which is, what do you think the likelihood is that my child in our context will develop this illness? And so with all of the data that we've collected um, with these families for 25 years, 
um, working with a very talented mathematician, uh, Charlie Keenan Stoneham from the University of Toronto. Um, we've developed a risk calculator using all the fancy math that's available these days, you know, taking into account that not everyone's going to develop this illness, which sounds obvious, but the mathematical models of yesteryear didn't account for that. So we have something called cure fraction. And anyways, looking at these very fancy parametric models, using data that the average clinician should be collecting and can collect on their patients. So this is an exotic research data. This is clinical data. Then entering this into an algorithm, which then gives predicts the risk in five and 10 years. So we've actually published that in um, an offshoot of Lancet Psychiatry, it's e-clinical medicine. Yeah. And we were able to replicate that on a completely independent sample from the, the Lucerne um, Geneva Swiss study of offspring of bipolar parents. So wow. since our study back in 1995, when that started, as when I was a resident, there have been several similar offspring studies around the world. So you're getting the, replication, the replications in on these independent data sets. That's right. And, and it gives us more power as well, you know, because even though we say we have all of these families and collect them for 25 years, we're talking about, you know, 350 kids um, at, a, at a rate of illness of, you know, is, you know, the, the majority of those kids won't develop the illness, thankfully. So, so you really do need to combine forces with other groups. Fantastic. So I'm just conscious of time here, Anne, and so only pivot slightly. And but I'm going to come back to maybe the bipolar stuff at the end when we just ask, what do you see as the key research? What, if you had all the money in the world type thing, what would you focus on in the bipolar field? But I think you've alluded to interventions already, but I'll maybe come back to that at the end of the podcast. But can I pivot? Because I know obviously well, you're saying now where your your current focus in terms of your where you're located is looking at university student mental health. So you can maybe tell us a bit about about that and in particular the the You Flourish study and and obviously yeah. work on COVID as well. And you can do some work on COVID student mental health during COVID. Absolutely, yeah. So what happened was when I I actually moved from the University of Calgary, who were very supportive of the work, but I wasn't able to get my grant back for the high risk study. And part of the criticism, rightfully so, I guess, is you know geographically Calgary is very far away from these Ottawa based families. So I looked for a position actually to get my grant back that would um, and and provide the resources that I could continue this high risk research. And I was successful in getting that grant back. But when I landed at Queen's, actually, at that time, the dean um, and the medical school were very interested in supporting um, the sort of campus university effort in um, student wellness and mental health. And um, because of my background working with young people and applied research, I was asked um, by the dean of medicine at the time, Richard Resnick, and my department head, um, could I get involved in this? Is this something that I would you know, considered developing some research in. And there was um, philanthropic foundations interested in investing in this area of research. And so that was in Canada, the Rossi Family Foundation, and then subsequently the McCall McBain uh, Foundation, and the Mott Gainsland Foundation. So there was a lot of interest. And what was missing was rigorous research in this area to really inform, you know, the determinants of student well-being and mental health, the scope, what the needs were, um, what would be an effective um, sort of framework of intervention. Um, and so actually I branded this research, uh, You Flourish, because I learned from the students that you need a brand, you need, you need an identity. People need to know who are you, who are these researchers? And um, we, we sort of uh, leveraged from the high-risk study because I had already branded that Flourish. Um, and I branded the high-risk study Flourish because the message to the families was actually, most of the children will not develop 
major psychiatric illnesses. And we want to look at, you know, identifying those students most at risk so that we can not over pathologize things, but really, you know, sort of motivate those students or those young people and their families to, to do what they can do in terms of selecting healthy lifestyle choices and mitigating symptoms as soon as they arise and also do better, better job at developing interventions. So that was the high risk study coming into the university at Queens. We decided to brand this you flourish. We immediately learned from the high risk study and partnered with our target audience. So in the high risk study, that was families in the university that was students. And so, and we had very little money to start off with. So it was very, the worlds collided because, you know, students were really interested to get involved. We could pay students stipends and the students were very happy to receive really anything. And there was a lot of volunteer work and um, it wasn't exploitation. It was, it was really a partnership. And um, it was more about how do we engage students in a conversation about their mental health and well-being? You know, um, you can always get students a small proportion of students who are really motivated, but it's how do we engage everyone and, and engage the hard to engage, including minoritized groups, so that we can really learn from the students across this diverse population. So that was our first task. And because of the small budget, the pragmatics were that we had to do this in terms of digital formats. So we ended up creating an electronic survey, which I call a conversation, because it was more than a survey. The idea was we would roll out a survey for all incoming first year students at Queens. We would try and engage as many of those students as we could uh, to get a representative sample. And then we would follow up with them through their university career. So at the beginning of the year, at the end of the year, at the beginning of the year. And so that was the beginning of the You Flourish um, Wellbeing Survey. And we were blown away. We got almost 60% of all first year students at Queens engaging with us and completing the baseline survey. And then 60% uh, of those students completed the follow-up in the spring and we were off. Yeah. What is that 60%? I have no, I have no idea of the scale of that. So there are, there at, in, in 2018, when this launched, there was roughly like 5,000 somethings undergraduate students coming into Queen. So we got 3,029. And we've been able to now follow up in the successive cohorts, rolling cohort studies. So coming into university and then following up as long as we can, we have now over 10,000 students at Queen's. And at that time, I was also honored with an invitation to become a visiting fellow at All Souls College in um, Oxford. Um, and that there was a great deal of interest in the student mental health research. And I took the opportunity to invite the Department of Psychiatry at Oxford to join us in this survey study because it was relatively sustainable and scalable and in a, you know inexpensive for the fact that we were addressing a, an acknowledged gap in the research literature, which was scalable, representative data using rigorous sampling methods. And so this could give us what the trends were in mental health and well-being outcomes. And we also asked students about theoretically based mechanisms and about help seeking and barriers and, and so on. Um, and so the Oxford University Department of Psychiatry embraced this and we rolled it out at Oxford. And since then, we have translated that into research that addresses what is prescribed but not yet evaluated, which is what, when you look at the UK and Canada, what's prescribed is a sort of universal approach to student well-being, so something for everybody, but also then um, uh, organizing initiatives and initiatives in a step care framework, so that you know um, you would have interventions that would be more preventative, 
and um, sort of uh, resiliency building, so to speak. And then you would have interventions targeting more symptomatic students. And then you would have pathways to more um, organized care for those, the minority of students who, but important minority who would need that. But as part of that work, do you actually do the intervention? Are you doing that universal selected indicated approach in terms of the interventions as well? Yes, we are. So, so I, this has just been such an awesome, exciting journey and story and in such a short period of time. So what we've done is we've partnered again with students and the, the um, Mock Gainsland Foundation is a small medical um, philanthropic research foundation. And we sat with them, the Dean, myself, Advancement at Queens, and they really, and they said, essentially, look, Anne, it's great. You're collecting all of this reliable to scale data, but what are you going to do with it? Like, we, we really want to fund you to do something to help students today. So then I thought, right, here's an opportunity to take this stage framework and do something that would be a universal prevention intervention, something that would maybe help students um, with some symptoms and then um, continue to collect information and maybe look at helping um, develop um, a pathway, a care pathway. So we, um, in collaboration again with students and also with um, a graduate student at the time who's now all grown up and a professor, Simone Cunningham, who's in psychology, she and I wrote a course, a mental health literacy course, which sounds super boring, but the, the course <laughs> is actually based on the evidence, like all of the domains of mental health literacy, like what do we mean by well-being? What do we mean by mental health? What do we mean by mental illness? How do you tell the difference? And also, you know, um, talking about the developing brain and the effects of our choices, so sleep, exercise, drugs, alcohol, um, and how that affects our learning and, and really tailoring it for students. And, and then we talk about help seeking and, and you know, um, essentially facilitating that where appropriate. And this is a really great collaboration because we collaborated with the course development unit Queens who actually do sort of state of the art digital yeah. curricula. And so it was all digital and this is before COVID. So it was all, really fortuitous because, you know, again, a, a sort of unexpected opportunity. And this course has gone, you know, gangbusters. It's so popular. And we, we offered it as an accredited one semester trans, you know, interdisciplinary elective. And it's gone across the university now in health sciences, life sciences, arts and science. And now there's an interest from engineering and, and some of the professional schools. We've done a condensed version of it for the University of British Columbia, who are going to be offering it to high school students transitioning. And there's an interest. Um, so all of this work has been spun into an MRC grant. Um, sure. And the MRC consortium has decided to rebrand this work from You Flourish to Nurture You. So for the UK brand. So you'll 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 see that. And it's really taking this work and adapting it to a UK audience and and across six Russell Group Universities in the UK, and um, that's ongoing. So we've done the mental health literacy course. We're doing various versions of it um, for various audiences. There's also an interest in, as part of the Compassionate Campus work stream of this work, to look at a course for faculty and staff that we may be piloting in Oxford. And then there's this um, digital well-being platform that we're offering to students as a tool to use um, now we're still researching it and the McCall McBain Foundation has invested money to make it sort of more swanky and yeah, up, yeah. up to up to the, our current con student consumer populations expectations because the, the, the current one is a little bit less 
you know, sexy, if I can use that word. And, and we want to make it, we want to make it like, you know, cool and, and what students want to see in, in terms of, and the utility of it. But essentially the wellbeing platform, we've, we've partnered with P1 Vital and we've adapted a tool that they used in uh, primary care practice in the UK to support patients being seen for depression. And we've taken that platform and we've adapted it with students as a wellbeing platform. And essentially it does a number of things. So it, um, provides already in the CAN wellbeing plans for students that they can use, you know, about their lifestyle, about sleep quality. Um, we also have linked with Big Health and are offering Sleepio and Daylight, which are uh, already proven effective um, digital resources for sleep and, and mood. So we're giving free access to those. The wellbeing platform signposts students based on their own entries to appropriate resources and gives automated feedback. So it's supposed to help students navigate their well-being and mental health in their own campus environment and linking to community resources. And, and so that, is that only available then in, so the, the work in the UK, is that at, at the sort of um, research stage or is yes. that available is it at the research stage? So it's at the research stage. So we're, we're looking at, you know, who does this, does this work? Is yeah. it acceptable to students? Why or why not? Who does it work for? Who doesn't it work for and why? So that we can learn, like, is this a, is this useful? Because yeah. what's been happening with the universities with the best of intentions is, you know, universities have been on their back heels because of an increased demand from students for, for well-being and mental health support. And, you know, traditionally, universities really since World War II have been debating their role in all this because, of course, there's the NHS and there's community services. And universities have been quick to sort of accept that they need to provide obviously a, a healthy learning environment and, and to support well-being. But then the question becomes blurry as to, well, whose responsibility is it when yes, students yes. start getting into trouble? And, and you can understand that, right? We, you know, we don't want to reduplicate services, but at the same time, there's an acknowledgement that we need to kind of learn what we can and can't do and for whom and, and how to facilitate transitions to community services. So, so that's kind of the conversation. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating conversation. So if, if we want to know, if somebody wants to know more about that, is that is there a website or? Yeah, so there's a website in Canada and also one in, uh, well, there's the, the Nurture U website now in the UK, um, but the U Flourish website at Queen's, there, there is a website there and you can see all of the different initiatives. So the, the mental health literacy courses survey, the well-being platform. Um, the other thing I should say is it's kind of, it's really cool. It's kind of like Hotel California. You know, it seems like you start working with me and you don't leave or, or something. But uh, Charlie, Charlie Keenum Stoneham, he, he's agreed to take the algorithm that the individual prediction models that he's done for us in the high-risk families and look at creating an individual student well-being predictor that then we can we can link or map to, you know, keep doing what you're doing and do more of this, or, hey, you know what, maybe you might benefit from looking at sleep or, you know, so we can do some individual stuff for students based on their own entries. So I think that'll be super cool. Well, I think it's definitely a case of what's, what's this space, because I mean, there's so, so much going on. So just in the interest of time, I'm going to just try and we'll tie it all together and bring it to, to, to a close. If you're 10 million pound, more than your 10, million Canadian dollars what, what would you say what would you want to prioritize in terms of mental health research well I, I guess in terms of um, mental health research is really big so I guess in terms of the high-risk study I think what's really key for psychiatry is we, we really have a stumbling block with these very broad diagnostic categories it's really hard to figure out what what the mechanisms are what the pathophysiology is of cancer 
you know, you have to drill down into specific subtypes. And we really need to start really researching um, very narrowly defined phenotypes of illnesses and really understand what the genetic underpinnings of those illnesses are so that we can actually then understand what's happening and, you know, develop tests for do you have bipolar disorder or do and, and also develop specific treatments. So I, I think psychiatry is really stuck because we haven't moved along in our diagnostic constructs and that's really been hampering us. In terms of student mental health research, I think we're on the right track. You know, I think we need to understand from the students who are increasingly looking more like the general population of young people, what's going on? How come anxiety and depressive symptoms are increasing both in university students and in the general population of young people? What's contributing to that using rigorous research methods and theoretical models and then developing, you know, student tailored interventions, but we need partners at the table and you know, as I say, you know, different universities differ on this. We, all universities agree that this is in, in, in a priority, but how to go about it, it it's, um, it's interesting because I'm doing a paper with a historian from Swansea um, and uh, Sarah Crooks, and we're becoming increasingly aware that the same arguments and the same conversations happened in 1960 as are happening now. And so why can't we get past that? <laughs> So it's looking at translating, we can develop findings, then how do we translate that in an efficient, effective way? And, and we need student advocacy for this too. So we're, we're continuing to partner with students, you know, not for us, without us kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Two brilliant, brilliant answers. Well, just one final question then, or maybe I'll try and squeeze in the second one in time. Yeah. So if, just a very different. So thank you for giving so much really valuable information. Um, really fantastic. And so, but, on a slightly different note then, thinking back, you talked about your early life at the start of the podcast, but if you reflect now on, on your 16-year-old self, what advice might you give your 16-year-old self? I guess, of course, worry has a purpose, otherwise we wouldn't be able to worry, but over-worry and getting stuck on over-worries and ruminating and, and then you know, that can be very toxic to our mental health and well-being. And I was a very over-worried 16-year-old. Now, it's good because you don't take risks. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you hook up with a best friend like I did, who was much more of a risk taker than me and pushed me into doing things. Um, but, uh, you know, but uh, I wouldn't worry so much. I, I, I think some worry is healthy, obviously, but over-worry is not. Yeah, that's good sage. It's good sage advice. And then the last one is um, thinking about... So Two people living or dead, you would say, I'd really love to have a coffee or a meal with. Who would, who would, any ideas who they would be top of your list? Well, I guess there's just so many fascinating and pivotal people. And, and top of mind, I've been listening a lot to uh, Jordan Peterson. And, and the reason I say him is because I'm listening a lot to him going, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and so I would like a conversation with Jordan Peterson. And, and because he, I don't know, for those people who don't know him, he's somewhat of a controversial figure, actually. I don't think much of what he's saying is controversial. I'll probably get sanctioned by the university now myself. But, but you know, basically, he's having open debates in a constructive way. And, and I really feel that we have to have the ability to talk about tough issues. And, and, and we have to talk about it with the intent that we're trying to be helpful and we're trying to get to these issues, but it's somehow it seems almost controversial to raise controversial issues, even at the university these days. So you're like shut down. So, so I, I just feel like uh, he's, he's saying a lot and doing a lot of things and raising important issues 
relevant to mental health and well-being actually um, and relevant to university life um, and I would love to you know have a head-to-head with him yeah no, I mean, because I, I mean um, I've read and listened to quite a bit of his stuff as well and yeah it's an, it's an interesting time I, I mean I I'm sort of on the fence some of the stuff I yeah I agree with others I'm, I, I don't agree with but sure. the point is we should be able to have the healthy debates and and as long as it's done in a in a way which is respectful, um, I mean that that's that balance between liberal, we're liberal and having freedom of speech, but obviously there are limits on freedom of speech. But it's um yeah no I I, I agree he'd been a really interesting character to yeah to no absolutely and because you, you would need more than coffee though it need to be we need to be longer than a cup of coffee. I having think so. podcasts and his YouTube videos. They're not brief, so no, exactly. And I was, I was thinking actually, the other thing that intrigues me about him is, of course, he's a clinically trained academic, and so he straddles that world between the clinical and the academic. Yeah, he's a clinical psychologist. And, and and so it, yeah, to me, it's it's a fascinating um, it, sort of conversation he's engaging the public in, which normally the public traditionally has not been so engaged in. So I, I think I think that's interesting. Um, and I guess the other person would have to be an artist of sorts. I, I really find Tom York from Radiohead really fascinating person. Not that I know, but I, I'd love to. I'd love to have a beer with him. Yeah. Um, but uh, equally to be said for John Lennon. So yeah. I would take. I would always. Well, I'm a big Lennon fan, so I would always choose John Lennon over Tom York. But I would. I would take Tom York as well. Yeah. What do you have, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> Any views on Tom York versus John Lennon, Craig? Um, I'd say probably Le- Lennon. Um, I, I'm not too familiar with Tom with Tom's work, but uh, there's a, quite a few Be- Beatles songs that I quite like. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah well. John Lennon was kind of ahead of his time. I I remember coming out of an exam at university. I'll never, you know, you you always remember these poignant moments. And in those days, I had like a Walkman radio. Remember those? Yeah. And I put on my Walkman radio. I came out of a disastrous exam in biology, which I kind of went, oh my god. Anyways, and I and then I heard the news that he had been murdered and I just I think I stopped I think I didn't breathe I thought who would murder John Lennon you know like I it's just such a loss and for for all of us and for society and and for I just it was just one of those you know my I I don't I'll never forget that moment I was it was incredulous to me I couldn't put my mind around it's so sad yeah and it was a a devastating day December 8th 1980 um and on that note uh, on that note, so let's end on a happier note. He yeah. left us an incredible legacy to build on and, you know, well, give exactly, peace a chance. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for the future. So on that note, and um, thanks so much for your time on behalf of Craig and I. Pleasure. Fantastic discussion. And we'll look forward. Our listeners, there's loads of stuff online. You can get um, access to Anne's papers. And we'll look forward to seeing the results of the You Flourish studies to continue and this other work going on. So thanks so much. And uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.